So we will be continuing with our study of 2 Corinthians this morning, chapter 3. So if you please could turn there now. When we last looked at the beginning of this chapter, we learned all about how all believers are an epistle of Christ, and that an epistle is a more sophisticated way of describing a letter. Our lives, therefore, are like a letter being written by him through the Holy Spirit to those around us who do not yet know Jesus. This is what life looks with him, the letter says. Well, we've just heard an epistle. Do you think that letter spoke to May's colleagues? Do you think that Amy Grace spoke even though she never said a word in her life? Today we heard an epistle. Praise God. Since our epistle is an actual thing, after all it is our day-to-day -day, real life, it has three dimensions. It has width. We must pass it on to others. It has depth because it changes us day-to-day. -day. And lastly, it has height because it is completely dependent on our connection with God. And of course, each of those dimensions brings challenges to us as we live out our daily lives. With these ideas in mind, we can... Now move on a bit, I'll just read verse 1 to 3 today. Although we did cover these last time, there is some important stuff in verse 3 that lays a foundation for a large part of Paul's later arguments, and so I think we must have another more detailed look at this particular verse. But before I read, let's just um, bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us today. Give it real understanding and depth in our hearts and real life in our lives, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. 2 Corinthians 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. So this chapter starts off by asking if Paul might need a letter of introduction from some important fellow to help people take him seriously. Well, he immediately answers that question himself. No, I don't need a letter at all because the evidence that the Lord has done his work is living. It's right there walking around all day as every believer's life in Corinth. Now Corinth was a bad place. I'll Sum it up by reminding you that a Greek word meaning to act the Corinthian had become a common way to describe fornication. Well, surely it then follows the darker the night, the brighter the light. And this is borne out by the first word of verse 3. Clearly, because this word comes from another Greek word meaning literally to bring to light. Paul has no need to, to prove himself or his fellow believers since in the darkness of Corinth, the believers 
life burns clearly with the light of Christ for all to see. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years, has it? The world is still dark with sin and only the light of Christ endures and we Christians are still his letter to that lost world. But there are always distractions. And so the message, the letter is often a bit messed up. When you read the New Testament books that speak of Paul's work, it's obvious that the work of Judaizers was a persistent problem for him and for the early church. Who were they? Well, of course, there's always a long and technical explanation, but basically it was a bunch of Jews and Gentile people who vigorously tried to mix up Jewish and Christian stuff in a variety of ways. One example is suggesting that Christians still needed to be circumcised in order to be properly saved. And there were lots of varieties of Judaizers. Some had completely missed the new part of the new covenant and thought that an improved version was needed, while others believed that Christianity was a load of nonsense and needed to be stamped out completely as quickly as possible. And in between, there were all kinds of different shapes and sizes. Now, we shouldn't immediately leap to the conclusion that these folk were really dumb to be like this. I mean, darling, it's so obvious. They may have been completely wrong, but they weren't necessarily stupid. I point this out because this kind of error is not so very far from us here today. It's too easy for us to fall into the same trap when we are motivated by something that we believe in really, really strongly. Like our national identity. Now just think, by now the Jews had been Jews for a really, really long time. It's hard to say exactly, of course, but at the time 2 Corinthians was written, they'd been so for at least 2,000 years, if you count back to Abraham, a mere 1,500 if you go back to Moses. Now, most of us in this room cannot claim anything near such a continuous history. Perhaps some of our Asian brethren can do so, but for most of us, one or 200 years is about the limit of our national identity. So just reflect then on... 2,000 years of believing that a relationship with God had to be like this and this and this, that feast and this food and those clothes and so on and so on. It's hardly surprising that some folk tried to carry these things into their Christianity and thought it very important that others needed to do so too. And there's a second historical factor. The general Jewish expectation for a Messiah was a, a warrior king riding in to bash the Romans properly and chase them all away, to restore Israel to its exalted position among the nations. So a Messiah who arrived quietly and preached peace and was crucified like the lowest common criminal did not make any sense for a lot of people. No. You've got the wrong guy. We'll keep waiting until the right one comes along, thanks. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to excuse the Judaizers and their behavior because it was completely wrong. But I do consider that we need to think so carefully about their example when our faith calls us to behave in a way that is radically different to our head experience. Like I said, it's really easy to fall into the same trap, isn't it? So this is the situation Paul is writing into, a group of believers being pulled this way and that by powerful social and religious forces. 
in a city that has sin, literally, as its middle name. How is he going to deal with that? One of the little philosophical ideas I've gathered along the way in my life is that if you want radical results, then you have to make radical changes. And I'm very proud to say that the great Albert Einstein apparently agrees. But he does set his proposition in a slightly different way. He says, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. In today's text, we can actually see the radical change option in action. Many of the folk hearing this message were Jews, and so for them, phrases like tablets of stone and images of writing on a heart would immediately start ringing memory bells, because these were well-known parts of the Torah, what we call today the Old Testament. These are images of covenant, not merely a commercial nature between business people, but more importantly, covenant between God and people. Covenants that define the Jews as a people apart from every other nation. So this was really big picture stuff. Paul was getting right to the heart of the matter. But in many cases, the heart wasn't needed in surgery. I think it's obvious that tablets is a clear reminder of the law as originally given to Moses of the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And the heartbeat is a reminder of the promises of the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel for a new covenant. I'll just read you the one from Jeremiah, because Ezekiel is broadly similar, and Jeremiah's was actually the first. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, there it is, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. What a great promise that is. Written a whole 500 years or so before 2 Corinthians came along. And its fulfillment is something that you and I and every believer have enjoyed since Jesus died. It is a far superior covenant to the last. And I'm sure that everyone who knew about it back then also thought it was a grand idea. What they struggled with was a very radical reality that it had actually arrived today. And moreover, it had arrived in not quite the shape that they expected. And this is why Paul is carefully making the differences between old and new really clear in this text. He wants the Corinthians to embrace the freedoms of the new and discard the burdens of the old so that all of those around them can see the marvelous thing that God has done, and take it too for themselves. Let's hope that both, that both of those things happened back then. But what about us today? What do these comparisons say to us when we read them? Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. 
not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. When we read the epistle as written not with ink, but by the Holy Spirit, it tells us that the new covenant is completely arranged by God alone. This reminds us that God as man became Jesus, and that he singly was able to make the atoning sacrifice for all sin, so that humans and God could be reconciled. It also gives us the reassurance that what is promised to us by the Lord will come to pass because nothing in this covenant relies on erratic and fallible humans. Next, God is living. This reminds us that God is vital and active, not passive and disinterested. He's always around. He's, he's always present. You know, there's a phrase around today that I am so dismayed when I hear it. When I hear people saying, God showed up. To me, it sounds like they think that he was somewhere else and he only came when he was called by some special behavior of theirs. It is such poor theology that diminishes God's character. God does not ever need to show up because he is never absent and never lacks the wisdom or the means to act right then and there. He does not ever cease to bless, to protect, to maintain, and yes, sometimes to punish. He will ensure that the terms of the covenant are fulfilled without fail, and exactly as he has planned. Unlike the days of the temple and the Holy of Holies, he is living, he is real, he is here, right now, and that is how it will be until the end of the world. God is living. The old covenant was written on stone. It was hard and it smashed anything that stood against it. Which is symbolic for me of God's righteousness. It was impossible that any human could meet its terms. And so without the shedding of blood, all who stood in its judgment were condemned. But the new covenant is a covenant of the heart. This reminds us of God's great love and mercy that we need so desperately because we are always sinning against Him. It also reminds us that in comparison to stone, which, although it is very hard, is inevitably worn away by time, the heart perseveres forever. And of course, when we see the word heart here, we shouldn't just mistake it for the, the physical pump in our chests because the Greek is it's a figure of speech referring to the, the seat and center of human life. The, the heart is the center of the personality and it controls the intellect, the emotions, and the will. It is us. And it is the us that will live eternally in one place or another. These are powerful and compelling images, and I'm sure that that's exactly what they were meant to be. They are intended to remind those who read or heard Paul's words that the new covenant was exactly that. New, completely different, radically better. It wasn't Old Covenant 2.1, a slightly improved version of the original and therefore needing some of the old and some of the new to work properly. No, just be new, says Paul. Just hold fast to the new course and your very life will be Christ's epistle to the lost. A message that holds true forever. 
Now, I'm pretty sure that everybody here will have heard of a fellow named Sir Isaac Newton. If you haven't, it's okay because his busy time was back in the 17th century and therefore he never made it into the Whanganui Chronicle. He's generally famous for discovering gravity, something to do with an apple falling on his head or something like that, whatever. The fact is that he was a really clever man and many of the luxuries that we enjoy today owe his existing, their existence to the understanding of mechanics that he put in place. And he explained that understanding through three laws. I'm going to paraphrase them, but I bet you already know some of them. First law, an object will either stay still, or if it is already moving, carry on exactly the same way it was going, unless another force is applied to it. For example, if you are sleeping in the pew, you will continue to sleep in the same position unless I come down there and push you onto the floor. Second law, force equals mass times acceleration. A stone thrown hard will hurt more when it hits you in the head than the same stone thrown softly. Ow! Versus ow. Now that's also a tempting alternative for a sleeping congregation. You should watch out if you ever see a stone on the pulpit. Third law, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. When I push you onto the floor for sleeping during my riveting sermon, I will have to push hard because I need to get a lump moving that wasn't moving before. And so I'll kind of feel it pushing back. So it's actually the first one that I'm interested in. Things carry on the way they were unless something else pushes them. So imagine that you are a new Christian. Like, like a rocket, you set off into your new life. Three to one conversion. Boom, liftoff. We have liftoff. Destination, heaven. Things are going marvelously for the first bit. Rocket is burning brightly, absolutely on track. But then the first Judaizer starts blowing their hot air onto the side of your rocket. Now, you may be going fast. And your rocket is burning brightly, but unless you start using the new covenant vector the new covenant vector thrusters to correct for the outside force, that garlic breath is going to start pushing you off course. It might be just a little, but because they never give up blowing, the error in your trajectory gets larger and larger and larger until whammo, you smash back into the ground. Thank you, Mr. Newton. So I've titled today's sermon, What's Your Riser? Because it sounds really cool. Well, I think it sounds kind of cool, but actually I've given it that title because although the Judaizers are still at the same work today, it's fairly unlikely that you will meet exactly one of them in Whanganui today. What is certain, however, is like the Christians in Corinth you will meet some other kind of Isa on a regular basis that will try to distract you and drag you back to your old habits. It might be a dollarizer, it might be a fun Isa, it might be a hobby Isa or an old friend Isa. They are many and varied and seductive. 
But I promise you, not one of them compares well to the terms of the new covenant in Christ. So, keep that rocket pointed in the right direction. Fix your eyes on Jesus only. Run the race. Win the prize. I am certain that the gratification offered by even the very most utterly specialist and bestest eyes ever will seem like nothing. When you hear your Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, writing on our heart, make us epistles to all men around us. And Lord, because we are such, because we become vulnerable when we are such, I pray that you would help us to see when an interest becomes an obsession, it becomes an iser and it pushes us sideways, deflects us from your will for our lives. Help us to be what you made us to be, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.